Hi everyone, and welcome to the new series of Creativity Sucks. I'm Eliza Williams, editor of Creative Review magazine, and I'll be your host for this show. This is our third series of Creativity Sucks, and we're roughly a year on from when the podcast first began. Our purpose with the show is to look at the challenges and joys that designers and creatives face working in the creative industries. We've covered a lot of topics in the past year, from trends like AI to topical questions about working in the industry. For the first episode of our third series, we're going to tackle the design canon, that body of work that we tend to look to to define what good design looks like. The canon has come under some scrutiny in recent years, particularly around diversity, but continues to wield influence over how the world sees design and designers. Today we're going to discuss the power of the canon and whether it is evolving. To do this, I have three brilliant guests from the design world. Type designer Nadine Shaheen, who is director and principal designer at Arabic Type Limited, a font foundry based in London, and also CEO of I Love Typography, a font distributor and academy. Craig Oldham, who runs the design practice Office of Craig, based in Manchester, and is also creative director of Rough Trade Books. And Jack Rennick, who runs branding and design agency Jack Rennick Studio in London and Argyle, and who has just taken over as president of design and advertising industry body DNAD for this coming year. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello. So to kick us off, I thought we would just talk generally what about what we what we all think the canon is. I've given a little description at the start of what I think it is, but I think it would be interesting to see how you all define it. Jack, I'll come to you first. What do you think its purpose is and how would you describe it? Uh, I think the purpose of it is is to have a, a history of graphic design, capture the evolution of it over time. Um, I think it's there as a as a education tool, reference tool for some inspiration. I think, you know, also about general interest. The current state of the canon, I would say, is probably very white and quite male. But I do think that's evolving. And I'm encouraged to see uh, movement in that area. Yeah, certainly. Craig, what do you think about that? Do you, would you agree that it's it's pretty white and male still at the moment? Absolutely, yeah. It's been, yeah, absolutely dominated by middle-class white men. Um, across the kind of Western society. And I think, you know, that's kind of the one, the canon that I think a lot of people refer to as the kind of Western view of what graphic design is ultimately tied with commerce. But I, I guess to me, it's it can feel fairly restrictive, but the idea of it, like any other canon of whatever discipline it is we might be talking about or subject, it's supposed to be this kind of thing where we, we'd sort of document record standards, whether they're technological advances or, you know, they, they record um, the kind of aesthetics or visual language of the sort of respective time that things were in there. But ultimately, it's supposed to be pioneering work that we all aim for or want to achieve or, or equally surpass and push the industry forward. But as I said, they're quite restrictive because they just end up being quite monocultural and that's not, it's quite counterproductive, that really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it feels like there's been um, a fair amount of movement to change that recently, um, certainly in the last two or three years particularly. But I don't know if that's happening. Nadine, what, what do you think? Are you agreeing largely with what Jack and Craig have said so far? Um, in, in a way, yes, but I, I do have to sort of explain a little bit more about my background before I answer. So when I look at type design and typography, which is where my focus is going to be in this conversation, not on general design, because that's that's where my area of expertise is. Uh, and I am originally Lebanese, so I, I come from outside the Western world, right? And um, uh, I, in the world of typography, uh, there is definitely a dominance of Western typography, so mostly Latin typography, so even Latin above Greek or Cyrillic. Um, I, historically, obviously, it's been white and male. Uh, women have been written out <laughs> Uh, and large extent of, of the history of type, um, but uh, that that canon, yes, it, it exists, and there's sort of the hegemony of of the Latin typography. You see it in the way where when you say typography, you assume it's Latin, 
and what you assume for Latin, you assume to be correct for everything else, uh, which is not the case, obviously. So definitely there is a restriction there. Uh, I wouldn't call it um, a gender or race restriction, more a cultural one because of the dominance of the script and the art history it has had. But within that norm, um, and, and I'm, I'm usually more comfortable talking about norm rather than canon, but, but that canon, it exists. Um, and there's, there's the what good design is and what good design is for. And within typography, within Latin typography specifically, uh, we find a little bit of too much rigidity in what it is for and what good typeface can be used. You know, like at some point it becomes pretty prescriptive. Um, and and we can talk more, a little bit more about that later. But yeah, that that would be how I how I see things. Yeah, I totally agree. But would you say there's been? It feels to me that there's been a big kind of boom in uh, non-Latin typefaces in in recent times and fonts. But would you would you say that? Absolutely. What what do you think has caused that? Is that just come through um, the sort of natural flow of of commerce and so on, or or why why now in particular? Um, partly it's, 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 I would say mostly technical because of the technological breakthroughs, like open type font formats, like the Unicode, uh, consortium, and, um, it just allows, uh, it and, and software like glyphs, it just makes it much easier to design typefaces for scripts other than Latin. Um, and so, you know, the barrier to entry is, is now much, much smaller, right? So, so it definitely changed things. Uh, in, in a really good way. But but I would say it's more about the language we use, the, the descriptions, the conceptions and understanding of what typography is, is still very heavily dominated by Latin, even when we talk about script and not Latin. Okay, that's interesting. So I was going to ask whether it's a completely different way of doing things then from what you were saying about, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how much you want me to go into details, but like the understanding of serif and sans serif is, is something that is very Latin, but you know, people try to bring it into other scripts with the expectation that it would behave the same way and often it does not. And, and there's lots of details as why and why not. And we need different ways of speaking uh, about type, which is something that we at I Life Typography are very keen about. And, you know, uh, we've, we've, you know, introduced descriptors and how to talk about type. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely issues around how global our, our understanding is of writing systems. And, and how we can expand our thinking because then it comes back and it enriches what you do in uh, Latin. Yeah, totally. Jack, does any of this resonate for you within sort of graphic design and branding? Are there, do you feel there are similar restrictions that come through from the, the standard sort of canon of work that we see is, is really to be admired? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's like um, most books uh, or even that, that I'm aware of or references or, or anything is usually reference to a western and latin alphabet um everything is created from that um i think that you know that comes down to you know i guess who's writing the books who's who's the person who are these people that are putting the canon together and i think that all starts with uh, kind of tends to be people sort of celebrating themselves a little bit um and you know who has those louder voices so uh, I, I definitely see that those books and those uh, uh, catalogues or blogs or whatever they are, uh, design references are usually sort of created by the same people and therefore have the same reference points over and over, just uh, regurgitating. Yeah, totally. Craig, I mean, as someone who works in, in partly in books, um, does that resonate with you? I mean, do you see that in the sort of book world that you are in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the people writing the books, it's the people publishing the books and the audiences that these publishers aim those books at. It's the it's a kind of a, a big feedback loop really that gets perpetuated and that's that's part of the problem really. That's what needs breaking that kind of cycle, uh, in order to widen these things and broaden horizons and respect different cultures and be a you know, not just a little bit more accessible but you know, a lot more accessible with different people from different kinds of backgrounds. I think it's incredibly important. Otherwise, nothing's going to change, really. With Rough Trade, is this something that gets talked about much? You're looking for these voices that aren't heard so much or aren't covered so much? Yeah, I mean, it's... 
absolutely discussed all the time and we're very sensitive to it. We're very aware of our own backgrounds and our own experiences and then wading in on things, be that from an editing point of view or from an understanding point of view or even just a commissioning point of view. It's, it's very much front of mind because we don't want to be, you know, everything we hate and everything everything we think's wrong with publishing. And I think we try really hard to give people on the periphery of the publishing industry or people trying to make their kind of break into it or that come from a, a really underrepresented place or have a, their own unique voice. I think it's really important that we give those people a shot just like everyone else gets a shot. So it's very much a conscious choice and a conscious approach to things. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, sometimes it, there's a desire to do that and then people get cold feet. I'm, I'm wondering with something like Rough Trade, because you're independent, I assume you're independent, is that right? Yeah. Um, that, that gives you that freedom that possibly bigger publishers, I don't know, I've just experienced it, it the situation where people want to lean back on what's familiar somehow. That's, it's just lazy, isn't it? Uh, it's, I, and I don't, I wouldn't describe it as freedom either. I, I'd describe it as a responsibility. It's not something I believe we have a choice in. I think it's something, it's a standard that we um, enforce on ourselves to achieve because if we don't do it, we're not achieving anything really, no, particularly not within what rough trade books is and what we set out to do if we don't do that then we're not doing what we should be doing we should just give up because otherwise we're just adding to the mess um and that's not not what we want to do at all um and i think it's it's that kind of principle or that kind of notion it's not just in publishing it, it it's a it's a notion that runs through society this idea of like hiring in the mirror and sort of having people around you that are kind of similar to you under these weird indoctrinations of yourself that you think, you know, you have ideas about yourself and whatever, and you just keep perpetuating them again. It's that cycle. And until that's, you know, it, it will be uncomfortable for people, you know, that kind of idea of cold feet, but that's the point. It's um, change is uncomfortable, but it's also really, really, really positive. You see that. I, I think you see that in, um, like broader than than books or anything like that it's like you know you see it in judging you see it in you know who's invited as speakers at events and people go for a default setting because they're worried it's not going to sell tickets or they're worried you know it's not going to draw the typical crowds that would usually attend these these types of things and i see i see it quite a lot in on judging panels and um and when people do try and step outside the norm of that then they're absolutely criticized for having people on a jury that are like and people are like who's that and why should i have any respect for their opinion you know they're not famous i don't know them and you're like well hang on you need to you know you've got to start somewhere you've got to, you've got to be inviting um like open op, you've got to open up and take those braver decisions and as it is a brave decision to you know have a have more uh, unknown names as your headline act or as your president of a jury or whatever like this. Um, and and you are putting your head above the parapet for it because folk are then going to have a little hissy fit that, you know, it's not the usual suspects and it's not names that they know. And it's like, but you're never going to change the diet or nothing will change if, if we don't change something. Well, that's it. If nothing changes, nothing changes. So Completely. And, you know, and I think, you know, like, as designers ourselves, you know, it's being open, a bit more open-minded rather than, you know, oh, I'd like to go to that event because it's a name that I know. It's like, I'd like to go to that event because I'd like to learn something different and just changing how these things are marketed and, you know, how they're kind of um, pushed to us, you know, to, to attend these things. I think that's the irony of the discussion here about the canon, isn't it? It's kind of like, if you do that now, I'm convinced... The, the canon or history will look favourably upon those people that did yeah. that did do it right and that did take that jump and others, you know, inevitably will follow after, you know, like you say, an absolute tsunami of whinging. Well, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, you're like, how how do we evolve? And it t- that, that takes bravery. You know, that takes absolute balls because, you know, those books might not sell, those tickets might not sell. You are going to face a, um, a backlash, but, you know, you've still just got to, you know, big deep breath and do it. And, you know, I admire, I admire the people who do. Yeah, totally. Nadine, I want to bring you in here. Do you, does this resonate with you as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, so, because I worked a long time in marketing <laughs> and I still do in a way for that, for IRP. But I, I understand the difficulty of um, the, the need to have a successful event and, and the risk that comes with it. And if it flops this time, maybe next time no one will come, you know, like, so these are, for the people who make these events, these are serious concerns. And it's easier to have a safe speaker that you know they are good, you know people want to come and hear them. And, and, and so I, I can understand. Um, and, and perhaps it's simply that instead of approaching these events as, as you know, simple presentations, maybe maybe the answer is having more conversations between people who come from very different backgrounds. And so on the same panel, you would have, you know, the usual voices, but you also have people who come from completely different backgrounds and then put them on a stage and let them speak, right? Let them interact, let that, you know, like the back and forth, the different points of view, we shouldn't shy away from critique, right? We shouldn't shy away from a little bit of design conflict to have conversations because without the conversation, we will not push open the design walls. The space that we are in will not expand if we do not push those walls, right? So if we want, so instead of like more like, it's not a replacing, it's more expanding and making space and have all of them exist in that one space and then then let them speak with one another. You know, that that would be my, like my, my understanding of, of how, how can we, how, how can we build on what we have without knocking down what we already have, right? Because it, it is it is something to treasure. And I, and I come from a background where we did not have the kind of graphic design history you see in the UK, right? So 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 the canon that exists is, is there for a good reason, because it's good. But I think now at the point we're saying is like, it's good, but there are other things that are good. And so instead of, you know, like my, my way would be like, just like, let's try to make the, that space bigger and to have space for others not not to replace because sometimes people can become quite defensive like ah oh, no I, I i sat on a conversation where they were like we need to pick uh someone to award and we don't want a white male guy and and if you come into conversations with that preset it's sort of it's also a little bit unfair for all the white guys who might be doing amazing work and and so so i, I think we need to be a little bit pragmatic recognize that we have something amazing but also recognize that it is no longer sufficient to say this is amazing and that's the end of the story. Like there are other chapters that need to be written. Yeah, I think that's really I think that's really interesting because some of the defensiveness, Craig, that you were mentioning kind of comes from that, I think, doesn't it? It comes from this, um, I mean, you know, if you're in the sort of world of social media, especially that people get very tense about this idea that it's a kind of replacing thing if there's not room for all the voices all the time and and that, that therefore to expand the canon you have to throw out a lot of people and it, that probably shouldn't be the case I, I don't think yeah I think I think that's exactly it sometimes you know we've been talking about it at DNAD if you you know you're, you're putting on a festival and it's like who 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 do you invite and who's the who's the headline speakers and all of these these kind of things and that's exactly right it's not about replacing because there is so much respect already earned there. It is about adding and, you know, having uh, big names talking with, with less lesser famous names yet is a great way to do that where you manage to pull people to buy the tickets because they're they, they know and respect the, the big name, the established name, and quite rightly so. But teaming them up with someone who is lesser known and having having a conversation uh, is a is a much better way of being able to do both and and starting to open up uh, people's understanding. I, I, I think I think that's a a much better way forward than uh, kind of maybe the way the way established events are just now, where it's like one speaker after the other. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I feel like <clears throat> because I am quite <laughs> acerbic and you know I understand my own kind of point of view on these things. I can come across sometimes, I guess, as a little bit negative, but I'm actually, I, I see it as a really positive thing that needs to be built. It's about building and it's about collaboratively doing that. And I think it's about 
opening up avenues for accessibility so that these these things that have always been good and always been around that it's not a new thing it's not just like suddenly different people from different backgrounds are creating great work it's always been happening it's just not always been shown and i think it's about creating a better facility and a better foundation so all that stuff does get celebrated and does get recognized but it's kind of like it's this insecurity around it it's kind of like the human condition really for change in that people just don't like it and they instantly reject it and they don't know that it's going to be a good thing for them or you know it's going to be a good thing to happen and that actually having more people at the table means that they will be better off and it's not like oh you get less of the pie kind of thing so i just think it's it's an incredible incredibly positive thing and we've sort of strayed on to talking about you know big name speakers at events and stuff and all that stuff really valid but these big names weren't always big names, you know, they came from somewhere, someone supported, someone celebrated their work at some point and someone gave them a foot up and they used that platform for whatever reason they use that platform for. That's the, that's all we're saying that needs to happen. It just needs to happen to more people that come from different places. I think that's an interesting point and maybe a good area to move on to. I'm, I'm curious with all your uh, personal experiences actually of getting into design, I mean, how much did you feel welcomed into the design world when you were first starting? Um, Nadine, maybe you could start us off with this. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to say something. I don't know if I should say this, actually. But anyway, anyways, I'm saying it anyways. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, it was, I was very easy to welcome. Um, it, it was up to a certain point. But basically, when I, um, when I got into the world of type design, that was 2003, um, there weren't many female type designers. And if you look at the scope of Arabic type designers at the time, there weren't many anyways, like it was so few, uh, barely, you know, you count on one hand, uh, on, on, a, on a global scale, right? So, so when I, when I sort of arrived on the scene, there was this massive gap that I sort of appeared in, right. To, to fill up. And, um, and there's the good and the bad. The, the thing is that. If if you are if you are female and young and you can give a good presentation, you will get a lot of invitations because people like to have gender parity or attempt to have gender parity, and so you're like, oh, thank God, you're a woman and you can speak. Come, you know. <laughs> so so in a way, you sort of benefit from that, but but up to a certain point because. Um, in, in my career, when, when I was a young tech designer and, and I was doing well and I was winning awards and things, it was fine. But within my progression where I was working, at some point, once you get to a point where you're more in management and you want to exercise authority, then, then suddenly it's a very different story. And then you're not welcome anymore, right? Because the glass ceiling does exist. And, and it seems as, as a woman, you're supposed to hide your ambition. And I don't. <laughs> and I, like I'm pretty like I it, it shines through me, you know, that I I I have things I want to do and I will go ahead and I will do them, right? This is this is how I go through life, and 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 it seems that uh, this sets people back sometimes. It 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 gets on people's nerves. I don't know, but um, it just felt that when you climb that ladder, at some point, the resistance becomes uh, it turns into aggression, right? Uh, that that you you just cannot keep climbing right uh, and and it comes from both genders it's not it's not limited to one or the other um, so uh, so you can you can be welcomed in the beginning and even celebrated but success comes with a very heavy heavy burden you know uh, because you can be successful but not too successful as a woman you know it, it just feels that way to me personally um, yeah I, I don't know it's um, it's still something I, I try to understand. Jack, I feel naturally I should come to you now. Does that does that sound familiar, or have we, did you have a totally different experience? Yeah, well, that it sounds familiar. You know, it's um, I think for me getting into, I think I, I think I got into it by accident because people thought I was a guy because of my name. I, I think it definitely definitely benefited me at the start because you know I was winning things and getting invited to, you know interviews for jobs or or that sort of thing and I would turn up and people would be a bit sort of horrified that I was a woman you know they were like oh you, you, oh you're female you know and I'm like uh, yeah and uh 
And then it was like, oh, and then you could just see the doubt just kind of creep across people's face. So I think um, I kind of wish now that I wasn't called Jack and maybe I should go back to Jacqueline to sort of help try and establish that, you know, that to let other, you know, it's like always about like, how do you let other younger younger females see that women are doing it? And um, and so maybe by having a male name, that's not really helping. But I think um, I think in general, to Nadine's point about about growth and everything, all of that comes down to trust, really, you know, and that's, it's like, what I think for, for women in whatever industry or whatever it is they're doing, there is a level of automatic trust that comes with men doing stuff that has an automatic doubt when women are doing it, depending on the industry. I think, you know, if you're a midwife, you know, then, and you're a woman, then you're trusted. And a male midwife is more kind of questioned but that that's 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 one industry. That's it. You know, every, everything else is. Uh, you know, if a female uh, plumber turns up, uh, there's a there's a question that goes across people's minds of like, is she up is she up for this job? You know, where like that doesn't seem to happen if it's a man that turns up. Um, so it's it's the exact same exact same in our industry. It's all about trust, and that's a notion that you have to work. And, and and you can't make a mistake. Oh God! As a woman, no, you can't. you can't. No, you can't. You have to work twice as hard Absolutely. and be perfect in every possible way. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't slip up at all because then you're just confirming what the unconscious thought was already. You, you know, you've just like you knew it, knew it, knew it. You can't trust the women. Knew, I knew women couldn't do it. I was right. I was right all along. Um. So you are on. Uh, you are on top performance all the time and like that whole sort of working twice as hard because you're going to be judged twice as much. Do you think this has improved at all in your your kind of career span or is does it still feel as pronounced as ever? Um, I think I think it has improved because there are more women uh, reaching down um, and, and helping pull other women up. I think before, and I think Nadine, you were kind of hinting at it there, that, the, the the progression of women hasn't always come from men stopping them. There's a lot of, you know, women in a position of power who have worked really, really hard. They've gone through the working three times as hard and are nervous of other women coming and taking their spot um and and put more of a boot in than what what the men do. Um because they're you know, they're kinda of clinging on to their their point of difference. You know, like they they are the they are the women that's doing it, and you know, and the, it, it will be a threat to them if another woman comes along and does it. Um, but I do I do think that is changing, and that that comes from um, a generosity of spirit and a desire to see change, and you know, improve the industry. A desire, not, not I don't go about kind of going. I really want to pull young women up so there's more women in the industry. I, I go. I, I want to pull talent up. You know, I want to feel talented people up, and if that happens to be women, then fantastic. You know, but it's about taking the time to to reach down and and spend a bit more time to recognise who's actually got the talent and 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 give them, you know, give them the lift. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Craig, I'm interested to come to you to see what what your sort of journey was and whether any of these things resonate for you. But also, I'm interested here because I know you do a lot of work at unis and with uh, young designers coming into the industry and, and whether any of this sounds familiar from what you hear from them? Yeah, ashamedly and embarrassingly, it is very, very recognisable. Um, I just, I think it's awful really that we're still talking about it or still has to be discussed. Because it makes it, I'm not, you know, it'd be, it'd be easy to sort of, I guess write me off as a, a white male on this conversation as someone who's just trying to say the right things and make the right noises, but I genuinely do believe that it shouldn't, you know, there's so many things to do with our identities that should never ever be, you know, defining on how far we can go with our own careers and our own decisions and our own ambitions. It's just, it's just a shame. It makes me really angry. It also makes me really sad, but I, you know, I, I'm just, trying to always do the right thing and that's not necessarily what I think is the right thing but it's you know I'm constantly speaking with people who aren't in the position that a white man might be to figure out what it is that I can do if it is it is very little but at least try and form some sort of example um 
to make this thing change and not be a thing anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of weird, but for me, I think I, I do see it a lot in university, you know, these stats and whatever, they get banded around all the time, that kind of cliff edge that happens where universities, are, are, well, university courses rather, seem to be overwhelmingly in the majority towards women uh, in terms of who makes up the makeup of those courses and then there's a cliff edge and it seems to be the majority of lads that make the transition from once from education to industry why does that happen um constantly trying to talk about that and find out if there's anything that anyone can do to just stop that from happening or at least give people the confidence to go into the industry as a minority and make it work for themselves and find their own way through it but you know, in my studio, I try and I try and do that as well. I mean, it's not that I have a quota or anything like that, but I'm incredibly sort of supportive towards women designers taking what they can from the studio in order to better their their own careers in the way that they want to do it, not in a way that I want to teach them or whatever like that. None of that at all. But it's not going to be solved by just getting as you know a bit like what Jack's kind of saying. I'm not. Don't want to put words in your mouth, mate. Just like it's not going to be solved by just suddenly pouring more women into the industry. And, you know, it, it's it's about diversity in a, in a really kind of broader sense. And that you know, we can't just fill it with middle class women for a start. It's got to be, a, you know, the full spectrum of how what people define their own identities by. And that's the only thing that's ever going to make this change because it's not just about men and women. It's about all forms of identity and gender and representation and you know creative color and class and all of those things they're all part of the same change that needs to happen if i may also add to that um because I'm, I'm in agreement with everything craig has said um I, I think when it comes to questions of what can we do to support diversity you know have not just gender diversity what else backgrounds all of it um, I, I think we also need to look at the wider uh, political landscape um, that we operate in. Um, so, for example, uh, I was at uh, ATIPI uh, at the last conference, and uh, there was the question of like, why can't we have more women speakers? Blah blah blah. And 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 we we made the point that when you need to offer childcare uh, budget to support women speakers because sometimes someone has to look after the kids. And and I think, like, and I'm going back here to the question of gender, if we want to look at what happens in mid-career, because at entry level, you will have good representation of both, but as you progress through your career, the women who have had to take time away and go home and take care of the children, um, uh, whatever maternity leave, this, this comes, uh, Consciously or subconsciously, in the minds of of management, it's uh, it's time away from careers. I've been mentoring women, uh, young female designers since 2018, and have seen some of them take time off to have a baby and come back. And you cannot believe the level of anxiety they have. They want to have the family, and they are terrified that once they have taken time off to have the baby and take care of the baby, uh, coming back into work is extremely difficult because they might have lost their space right and and their colleagues have moved on and moved up and they have to start back from scratch or whatever and so unless we are able to engage within a wider political narrative of who are the parties that are supporting uh you know childcare budgets uh like I, particularly in the uk having a kid is becoming honestly expensive um, and and women have to stay home to take care because it's too expensive to put in daycare all of these questions are political questions they're not design questions and if we as designers do not engage in the political conversation of why women are not being supported by uh, you know the successive governments that have been around for the last decade or 13 years then that is the question that needs to be discussed because we're not going to fix it if we keep looking at it as a design problem this is a societal problem, and we as designers are, have have a role because we are able to communicate. Um, and if we do not put our skills to that service, uh, then we're not really doing anything to change that. Right? We we cannot. It cannot. It's not. We're not a bubble. We're just reflecting bigger societal concerns. And, 
uh, we we need to engage with with the source of the problem and not the symptom of it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that point, and I think obviously that much of what you were saying there would re- would apply to other sectors as well. But I think there's something with the creative industries in particular that you know things just feel precarious all the time. That it feels it feels that and Jack's point about not making mistakes, but also. And you know, for for men, you know, for men too, like it's it feels like a precarious industry. If you have to have time out to have children, or if you have time out for other reasons to do with your personal life, it can feel as if you're off. That's it; it's gone. And um, and I think uh, in the creative industries, there needs to be more of a sense of you know that you're not going to run out of steam at 35. You know, you're not going to. Uh, you know, if you haven't got to a certain point by a certain time, then there's no point. I think there needs to be a change of mentality somehow, but I don't quite know how that's achieved. Um, any ideas? I think it's true. It's it's it, it's going to become quite an off-putting industry for young people to get into, male or female. Um, if it's seen that you know you take five minutes off and that's you had it, you know, if you're not there on day, you know, twenty-four-seven. That, that therefore you're now you're kind of out of the out of the loop or out of the circle or not performing anymore um so we definitely need to get across that that is not the case to young people because it's i mean i see like young women who are just sort of like the thought of getting into it and not being able to have a family they're just kind of like fuck that you know it's like no I'll, i'd rather do something else where I've, I've got a bit more options so i i, I think um yeah, as as a as a collective of creative people and and uh, employers or industry leaders or anything like that, it is um, sharing the message that you are not finished if you take five minutes off. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm interested because you all run you all sort of run your own businesses now, and you all, and I'm interested thinking about that and thinking about maybe what led to you doing that. Does that make you feel like you have? more freedom to do that and to do things differently to to maybe the things Nadine you were talking about about hitting ceilings do, does it does that help with that yes <laughs> oh my god honestly I mean I'm, I'm sharing a little bit too much today but when I when I left um my previous role I, it felt like I could suddenly be a woman again because it's it's very difficult to explain but when you have to defend your position you sort of have to put on armor uh, to sit in those meetings, to read those long emails, to put up with the harassment, to, to you know, like just exist and, and to be able to exercise the, your own authority. Um, and, and so you toughen up and you build this armor around you. And um, when you have that armor on for so long, you, it becomes you. <laughs> and so when I left, I didn't have to sit in useless meetings with middle management I didn't have to put up with office politics. I didn't have to put up with uh, colleagues who have who need to feel that they need to speak so that they justify their existence in the company. Right? I mean, you have this in every company, anyways. Um, and and I could just work. I you know I could just do. I could design. I could just work with my clients and, and just enjoy it because design is such a creative, enjoyable process most of the time, at least for me. And 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 I it's just. It, it was such a big relief, you know, to be able to just be, you know, without having to fight to be, right? Uh, so uh, it's it's just uh, like my my complaint in my last, you know, that time and that previous job was was that I I just want to work, <laughs> and and I just I just want to work, you know, and and uh, it's uh, it's really nice to be able to have the mental space to do the job you want to do and then to do other things. You know, like when I left, I, I was doing a master's at Cambridge in politics and international, international relations. And, and, I, and it was, uh, it was like a renaissance for me, you know, to rediscover uh, a part of me that I didn't know exist and, and, and to just widen the scope of how I understand life and design and, you know, like it's just um, sometimes when you run your own business, you get to decide how to spend your time. And I think that's the most precious thing you can have ever in life. There, there is nothing more precious than time, you know, and who you give it to and what you give it to. Yeah, completely. Craig, does that um, resonate with you in terms of running your own thing? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a kind of, 
I mean, whichever way you look at it, there's a liberation that happens um, for for all people. I guess it's, it depends on why you why you leave someone else's structure to then go and form your own. But um, for me, it definitely was. It wasn't just like, oh, I want to do my own work or I want to earn my own money or whatever. I just wanted to do things completely differently. I didn't want to. I always describe it in the crassest of terms, so I apologize. But like, you know, I didn't want to eat egg and chips for every meal every day like a lot of agencies do they said they set out the stall and then they just do that for different people and i was kind of really disenfranchised by that i wanted to see what you could do and who you could communicate to even build your own audiences as a designer or whatever and or even shedding off those labels but i think the the most important thing for me was about was had nothing to do with creativity or or design and it was about treating people in a different way and using uh, lofty words but you know like my model as it were to sort of not just to try something differently to try and make something a bit more equitable for everybody to sort of understand what was going on in the industry and not contribute to the problem but try and solve it and all the things that I felt for me personally and sort of my class and my accent and the shit I used to get from a lot of people about that um like not give those to other people and take the industry out of London or, or certainly try and offer a decentralized model of where creativity has to happen where culture has to happen and you know this idea of what we were talking about there um in the kind of political ideas that Dean mentioned you can approach them like we one of the things I did was like try and even though I've never had to use it at all, um, like try and establish a different model for like parental leave. So it's not just the kind of industry standard, not even the industry standard, but the government standard kind of for paternity and maternity, but all, all parents should get a better stab at that. And maybe that might be a small change, but letting staff, you know, just being aware of like what they're going through, if it's whatever's going on and understand that if they're, feeling better or treated better then they're going to do better um and that that's across the board of everything from the creativity and the inspiration down to you know understanding what if they've got pretty bad menstruation or pms that they can work from home it's like what does it matter it's like you look after people and they should look after you and the whole thing is an exchange i think that's the big thing that's happened in my kind of frame of mind is that yes i'm employing someone and from my term of employment i want something back for it that's where the exchange is there but it's much bigger than that and you contribute to other people's lives and livelihoods and they contribute to yours and it's it's an incredibly enriching experience when you can get rid of some of that archaic exploitation that can happen or that that employers still can see is there, you know, I get a right to do this because I pay you your salary, therefore work late, therefore do this, therefore let's disguise some toxicity with some beers and pizza on a fucking Thursday night or whatever. It's like, come on, have we not outgrown that now? Do we not all realise that, you know, this? They, I mean, just, just that alone, working late, I really don't get that at all. I've never understood it, even when I was a kid and I had, like, jobs growing up in shops and shit like that the idea of working late was like oh in their right mind wants to stay at work why do why don't you want to go home and enjoy your life and yeah it's twisted when when creativity comes into it when you are you know suddenly doing something that you love and all that kind of woolly shit it's like suddenly people take advantage of it and you should want to stay late you know otherwise you're not doing as good otherwise you're not going to you know the purpose of this question you're not going to make some work that's going to enter the canon unless you stay late and suffer for your art and it's nonsense it's nonsense go home at half five and your work will be better i just don't get it at all and i think that for me setting up uh office of craig and my old business and you know working with rough trade and it's it's something that absolutely is a core that we that concentrically everything we do spins out off that um it's it's just a no-brainer to me can I, can I follow up on that, please? Because, um, Eliza, you've asked, what can we do? And I think there is something as an industry that can be done um, if collectively uh, there's some form of discussion around the topic, and that's pitches, especially the unpaid ones. But this is, 
free labor where you expect people to work late, crazy hours, it's very rough. And, and this has a negative impact. One, if you're doing it for free, uh, the client is benefiting without having to pay anything. That doesn't make sense. And uh, you are automatically sort of uh, like if you're a woman with kids at home, you cannot work late. If you are someone who has uh, someone to take care of at home, you cannot do that either. So it's not just the women. Um, if you, you know, like one, you sort of um, limit who is able to participate in such a design culture because you have to work late and put in the crazy hours. But then two, because you have to do so much work because so much of it is unpaid. You have to do more design labor than what you would normally do because so, so much of it is unpaid. So you have to work quickly. And this is where it feeds back into the canon that we have. When you have so little time to produce so much work, you don't have the luxury of trying to push design outside of the existing canon. You just don't have that luxury because you have a deadline to meet in two hours. And there's a client who has asked five agencies to pitch for their branding. And you know, so all of it, it's, it's the question of speed. It's the question of, do you actually have time to think of design or are you just executing in the hope that you will get a branding project that you will help you pay the bills, right? So, so this, this is one of the root causes of why a Canon is so solidified in design is because sometimes you just don't have that luxury of, of revisiting it, of having a conversation or even doing research. Sometimes you just need the existing easy answers because you just don't have the luxury of time. Um, and, and so this could be something that we can discuss uh, to see if perhaps, I, I don't know how that could change, but, but there are agencies who refuse to pitch and, and maybe that could become the norm if enough people sign up for that. I actually think pitching is a whole podcast episode in itself. It's something that, uh, I mean, I hear about a lot and I it feels there's almost a stalemate about it, but I feel um, that it is something that we should go into separately on its own. And I think, but I think in a broad sense and, and following up, Craig, your point as well, that it's interesting where the part of the creative industries, but yet somehow those industries can feel pretty stuck in certain tram lines, you know, considering how much, um, you know, breadth of mind there is there trying to think of new ways of doing things that our, our systems of work still are very um, stuck, I think, um, at pitching included. Uh, I'm slightly conscious of time, so I'm going to come to you, Jack, at the at the end, as I came to you at the beginning. Um, I'm sure you have some things to say about those points that have been raised, but I'm interested just to talk briefly about DNAD and and you taking over as president because this is obviously a, a kind of canon moment in itself right that you're joining a um an alumni of presidents of dnad that you know is pretty pretty auspicious so i wondered how much do these sort of industry bodies ha- help with these things move things along and and kind of briefly what are your your plans and hopes for your time as president joining that kind of almost kind of like alumni if you know what I mean it's it's such a incredible honor and incredibly flattering to 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 be asked to to, to step into that role and I'm uh, not quite sure if they know what they're what they're getting but um <laughs> you, you, you can't help I, I, I don't know if I don't know if every president who has done this is is felt not worthy of it you know but I certainly do so I was going at it with a, a, a bit of sort of fear and dread of of letting people down is uh, is is the kind of foremost thought in my mind right now. Probably probably because I'm just feeling a bit nervous about it. But I think um I think genuinely as DNAD as a as a body and and association, I, I think work really hard to make a difference um to to the canon particularly, and they get a lot of flack for it. Um, and I'm sure putting me into this presidential role, they'll get a lot of flack for as well, you know. Um, uh, Scottish poor, you know, hasn't you know hasn't walked the walk that you know many others have. Um, I think you know what what I can bring in it, um, maybe a bit of a different perspective, um, because I have come up through the ranks through a different way, and. Uh, maybe I've earned my stripes differently. So I think what I would hope to, what I would I would hope I can bring is 
a, a kind of broadening of awareness of where talent can actually come from and um, help to sort of solidify some initiatives that are already, you know, discussed and underway about how do we reach out, how do we broaden the talent pool um, from from all walks of life, you know, we're very, very conscious of gender, very conscious of race, colour, um, Western versus, uh, you, you know, a more broader global perspective. But I think just um, also on a, a socioeconomic uh, diversity needs to happen as well. And if we, if we genuinely want excellence in design and creativity, then that excellence starts um, kind of just repeating itself if we don't look for different excellence. And it's really kind of part of this conversation that we need to find talent from elsewhere and we need to encourage that talent and give it opportunity. And hopefully over the next year with um, different talks, initiatives, events, etc., I want to reach out personally to ask, ask, ask the industry for help as well of how how can we do that? I don't know what the answers are. I, I, I know things that I would personally like to do, but um, there's a lot more cleverer people than me that can help. How do we reach out to children? How do we reach out to parents? How do we get people to understand that this is, you know, design is an interesting career, but it's also a lucrative career, that you can earn good money, that parents don't need to, you know, force their children into a, a life of academia that you know they can be successful they can um you know have a great a great lucrative career in design so that they encourage their kids to take that path and rather than seeing it as a as a vacation seeing it as no this is an actual proper career uh, there is a proper business of design and the business of design makes money transforms businesses transforms culture and can transform the individuals themselves and the people within it. So broadening broadening the talent pool is, I guess, the top line of my agenda. I hope that answers your question somehow. It totally does. And personally, I think you're the perfect president for, for right now. And I think what you said then is, is you know, there's lots of urgent, urgent things needed at the moment, isn't there? But I think in terms of design, that, that uh, you know, raise, sort of reminding people what it does, why it's here, and how what how amazing it is to be part of it, and and making and giving that to more people is so important. And broadening the canon to end on the on yeah. maybe the note of this this conversation. Um, I really feel I I think I say this at the end of every podcast, but I feel we could talk and talk on this. But um, I'm going to bring it to a close um, and say a huge thank you to to Jack Craig and Nadine for. For sharing all your thoughts, I thought it was really fascinating, and I think there's so many things to take away from it. Um, not least the need to do a pitching uh, podcast after this. <laughs> um, but thank you for being part of it, and thanks to everyone who's been listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we'll be back with more in a, over the next the coming weeks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.